coming up. Some things change, some stay the same. I'm therefore conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. So, what happens next for Labour and for everyone else? Let's wipe that slate clean from today and get on with the work we've got to do as a party together. Hello, Paul Osborne here as our summer of collective madness comes to an end. In the last three months, we've voted to leave the European Union, seen a prime ministerial resignation, a surprisingly speedy transition to a new prime minister, some significant changes in the direction of the government, a new leader for UKIP, and of course that huge yawning chasm where you might have expected some kind of comprehensive plan for Brexit. Meanwhile, on the Labour side of the garden, they've been busy ignoring all that in favour of a three-month bout of navel-gazing, which in the end achieved not very much, really. Jeremy Colburn, 313,209. Owen Smith, 193,229. I am therefore conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. Please, Jeremy, welcome on this day. In the end, Jeremy Corbyn got a slightly higher share of the vote than he did last time, but from a significantly bigger constituency. It is worth pointing out that close to 40% of those who voted in Labour's leadership election wanted rid of him. But there is no question, Labour supporters want Jeremy Corbyn as leader. They've been asked twice now, and they've come back with the same answer each time. And after a summer of trolling, abuse, even bricks through windows, he wants them all to get along. I will do everything I can to repay the trust and the support, to bring our party together, to make it an engine of progress for our country and the people that depend on the Labour Party to protect their interests and win power to deliver real change in this country. We have much more in common than that which divides us. As far as I'm concerned... As far as I'm concerned, let's wipe that slate clean from today and get on with the work we've got to do as a party together. Over the last few months, we have had plenty to say about Jeremy Corbyn, like pretty much every other political commentator in the country. But in the end, what we say doesn't matter, and it certainly didn't matter to the 313,000 people who voted for him. So what is it that they see in him, despite all that criticism? Well, to find out, I spoke to one Labour supporter, David Stubbs, a journalist and author whose most recent book, 1996 and the End of History, goes back 20 years to the time leading up to Tony Blair's arrival in Downing Street. And he told me it was that era that made Jeremy Corbyn so attractive. I voted for him. Like a lot of people, I thought anybody who's been a backbencher that long isn't necessarily going to have necessarily the skill set to be a leader. I voted for him, like a lot of people, purely because on the menu... He was the only left-wing option. He was the only one presented. And I think the reason he was the only one that was presented, the only one that he had, they had to reach all the way back to Jeremy Corbyn, precisely because over the last 15, 20 years, the selection process to bring people through into the Labour Party has been kind of skewed in favour of sort of wonks, mediocrities, yes people, lobby fodder in a sense. And I don't think that there's been an encouragement of a kind of diversity of talent, uh, a diversity of opinion within the Labour Party. Therefore... 
it had to be Jeremy Corbyn. How do you feel he did over that year? In lots of respects, certainly in the kind of way that, like, political commentary conventionally analyse these things. I mean, not fantastically. I mean, I saw the Vice documentary. But then a lot of political discourse has been about this idea of how do people come across performance. And it's almost like this idea that the idea of politics is that you shove somebody, a bit like boxing, you shove somebody in the ring and see how they get along. And I think that um, the whole Corbyn thing is trying to encourage something that's kind of broader and deeper than that, that, you know, to encourage a much greater level of engagement, that a kind of grassroots level isn't simply this kind of theatre, this spectacle of, like, how our appointed leader performs and how well he does at Prime Minister's Question Time. Because that kind of thing, in a sense, is kind of an irrelevancy. It's disengaged from the actual meaningful process of trying to you know, affect some sort of socialism to change people's lives. There's a sense from some commentators that to, to a lot of Mr Corbyn's supporters, it doesn't really matter that he may or may not win a general election. That what's important is that he's he's taking the Labour Party in a different direction. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. I mean, in 2020, I think it's extremely unlikely that a Labour Party led by anybody would actually win. And that is in keeping with post-war political history. I think it's kind of delusional of the Labour centre-right to think that if only they could get in somebody half plausible, they would actually murder the Tories in the next election. I just simply don't think that's the case. I think the numbers don't stack up the way that they are. And I think if you look at politics, if when the Tories get in, it takes a long time for people to get fed up and get out. In 1997, when Tony Blair came in, the economy was actually in a pretty decent nick. Things were doing OK, but people were fed up of being ruled by the Tories. And so in came Labour. It'll be the same this time, I predict, that it won't be until about 2024 that people will get fed up with the Tories if previous history is anything to go by. Therefore, this kind of sense of urgency that you get from the centre, centre right, we've got to get in, we've got to get in now. I don't think that's because they're kind of like really eager to get in there and affect real change. They simply are people who want power. They want personally to have power and influence. And I think there's just this enormous sense of betrayal, a cumulative sense of betrayal on the part of a lot of people are traditional Labour voters. There's a profound sense of disaffection. And I think that's why Corbyn absolutely wiped the floor with um, his opponents in, in, in the first election. So it's not even so much about Mr Corbyn staying on as leader or someone like him staying on as leader up to the next election. It's about keeping the Labour Party going in this direction for 10 years. Yeah, it's a repositioning. And I think all kinds of things are going to happen. There's an awful lot of work I think is going to have to be done and all kinds of breakups may occur. The Labour Party may break up. I think that now is a time to sort of maybe take a much longer view and rather than like make a kind of desperate lunge for power, actually take the long view, look to kind of rebuild. To me, Corbyn is just the beginning of that. I don't see him as being around for that long necessarily. I think essentially he... Probably his historical role will possibly be more as a kind of as, as a symbol of change, as a symbol of a kind of integrity that are being kind of lost. And that's what he does represent to a lot of people. I think that his, for instance, his expenses record is absolutely impeccable. I think that plays really well with people. So what some people see as his kind of political ineptitude, some people see him as the anti-politician, but he couldn't be contacted recently because he was making jam. I mean, some people, you know, certain kind of people in the commentary might have thought that was ridiculously unprofessional and appalling. Other people will be absolutely charmed by that. What do you want to happen next? He's been talking about reaching out to the people who opposed him, inviting people back into the shadow cabinet. How do you get these two sides to attempt to work together? It's, yeah, it's, it's going to be really difficult. And I think that uh, the Corbyn administration really could use actually some of the, you know, the experience, the skill set or whatever, the, you know, the, the talent, albeit of a slightly difficult, different political persuasion of this kind of disaffected centre-right. And I think that it would be... For those who hold the interests of the Labour Party as a kind of 
continued entity at, at heart. I think that's what kind of needs to happen. Unfortunately, I'm not quite sure it will. I suspect that what some people call the, you know, the attempted coup, the whole Owen Smith debacle, will kind of continue in other ways. I think there'll be a lot of undermining and backstabbing. I think that what you're likely to see is a struggle in its sense for the brand of Labour. I think each would like the other to go away. And I think there's a kind of likely to be a struggle for that. So unfortunately... You know, the pessimist in me is that there could be a kind of prolonged civil war. But I would hope that perhaps that, you know, having now that, you know, Owen Smith has kind of been seen off, that hopefully more, you know, sensible councils on in the Labour Centre and Central Rights, we're, we're just going to look to most fair minded people. They're just going to say, look, you've, you've lost this now. I think an emphatic decision has been made. I think you really need, you do need to get with the programme now. Which of those sides do you think is going to win? Oddly enough, I think that the Corbyn will win because I think that. The Labour centre-right, the kind of Blairites, Brownites or whatever, um, are actually a spent ideological force. I think their time has come and gone. Chilcott discredited him so profoundly that it's very hard for them to kind of reach up to Tony Blair as a shiny example anymore. Therefore, and I think the future does belong, if not to Jeremy Corbyn personally, to this whole concept, this whole project of repositioning the party further to the left. Inequality is only rising. The problems like housing and rent, you know, only getting worse and worse. These are affecting younger people. So I think that the future is only pointing in one direction politically, as far as I'm concerned. And that's David Stubbs, whose uh, book, 1996 and the End of History, is uh, out now. Well, Robert Meakin joins me. Robert, as I said at the beginning, we haven't really hidden our perception of Jeremy Corbyn as not in any specific way a winner we have to change that now he's won twice and I know we hate using the word mandate but when you've stood for a leadership election twice you've been overwhelmingly elected twice and hundreds of thousands of people have signed up to support you then you really do have a mandate what many of his own colleagues have failed to understand what we so many commentators have failed to understand is is the is the nature of this revolution that has overtaken the labor party that obviously dates back to last year that the way the left has galvanized finally galvanized together behind uh, one individual i.e corbyn all these various splinter groups came together via has to be said mainly you know, social media got behind him as one force the moderate side of the labor party never never saw this coming and i haven't been able to understand it one of the things i thought was really interesting in what david stubbs said i think our perception has been even if jeremy corbyn hangs on all the way to 2020 he hangs on he loses the election he goes and the labor party shifts back to being a kind of a center left-ish party what he's saying was that this is a very long-term project no labor leader was going to be able to win in 2020 and so it's about moving the labor party irrevocably to the left for the long term so that even if Jeremy Corbyn isn't necessarily the leader at the time of the next general election 2025 the person who replaces him will still be of the political left the center of gravity will have moved to the left the people in the shadow cabinet and of course if there is a wholesale change in the makeup of Labour MPs if the party members do start deselecting MPs it will shift Labour to the left for a longer period yeah, I mean, I mean David's explanation and argument is obviously sounded far more interesting and dare I say accurate than say the, the the more short term argument for Corbyn. He's not going to say 
I'm just leading us to an electoral disaster in 2020, but I'm just part of the story. Political leaders can never do that. He's obviously going to say he's in it to win it in 2020. A far more interesting and you know, realistic proposition for the left is whether they can maintain this sort of momentum and power and take the party on for you know, a decade plus longer and be in a realistic position to win. So let's try to have a think about what's likely to happen next. There are lots of different options. The one that Mr. Corbyn would like is a sort of reconciliation, is that the two sides in the Labour Party come together, the divide is healed and they move forwards uh, as one. Now, I'm sure that some of the MPs who came out against him over the summer are going to say, well, he's been re-elected, you know, we've had our say and, and we and we accept it. But you can't avoid the conclusion that a lot of Labour MPs are just going to sit and glower from the backbenches and continue sort of plotting how they can, to use the phrase of the summer, take back control of the Labour Party. Yeah, and, and of course the, the reality is, whether they like it or not, it's not their party anymore. I know they can squeal about the, the Labour electorate at large being different to the party membership. The truth is it isn't their party. They have a choice and we've discussed it you know, many times before. I mean, do they actually leave? Do they set up a, a breakaway group? At times I've wondered whether that was the only option for them. Right now, I just don't think that is the way forward. I think the, the ghost of the SDP from all those years ago haunts them. They don't want to set up a breakaway party. They want to remain in the Labour Party. It just simply isn't their Labour Party anymore. I think he's the leader till 2020. I think another you know, stab at him next year or the year after would look faintly ludicrous and undignified. The issue, of course, is how this is all going to play out with voters because John Curtis, who, who writes a great deal about electoral mathematics, has written in the last few days that while it's obvious that Mr Corbyn is not popular with some Labour voters and the Labour Party's share in opinion polls has dropped it hasn't dropped catastrophically it hasn't fallen away it's dropped to around 28 29 and it stayed there which implies that there is a core labor vote that is receptive to jeremy corbyn the corbyn supporters will tell you that what they're doing is building a movement that's based around energizing a group of people especially younger people who maybe didn't even vote at all in past elections because they didn't feel anybody represented them the issue is are they going to get enough of these new people who've never voted before to make up for the labor voters that they are shedding who can't see jeremy corbyn as a viable prime minister I mean, that's a, a strong argument for Corbyn that he, you know, the, the dispossessed, the politically dispossessed, have embraced him in the way that maybe they did also to a certain extent UKIP at times. But whether you say the numbers are really there, if, if you know anything about sort of the, the British population, the British voting population, it suggests the numbers aren't there. The problem is that the route back to power for Labour is through gaining seats and you the places where you need to gain seats are Scotland, where there is still no evidence at the moment that the Labour Party is poised to win back some of the seats that it lost last year, and central and southern England, where there seems little evidence that Mr Corbyn is successfully winning over supporters. And I just wonder if these large groups of dispossessed younger people who are flocking to these rallies, who are energized by jeremy corbyn's message who view him as a sort of a folk hero 
are perhaps living in places where there are already Labour MPs. And the problem is you can win all the extra votes you like in a place where you've already won the election. They're useless. You need to win votes in the places where you have a reasonable prospect of taking the seat if the aim is to get back into power. And as you say, it possibly isn't. As we heard earlier, it seems to be about building a longer term movement that shifts the Labour Party to the left, almost regardless of the electoral consequences. Yeah, I think right now, now that Corbyn has his second huge mandate, I think now, I think the the immediate business, the short term business is the turf war inside the Labour Party, which you know a lot of the, these people are ready, you know, knives are drawn, they're ready to go. We're ready, we've got a Labour conference, for goodness sake. I mean, that's going to be a, a tense and bloody affair. The dissenters against Corbyn, you know, they've got to watch their backs now. That, it's that side, of, I, I do think it's going to be that, it's the internal war that will uh, dominate the headlines in terms of the Labour Party for the time being. The rest of the country can wait, I suspect, in the eyes of these people. Let's just quickly uh, have a think about how this is going to impact on on other parties, because you could see at the Lib Dem conference last week, Tim Farron making lots of noises that were designed to appeal to those centre ground Labour voters, that there was a home for them in the Liberal Democrats. He did an interview for The Guardian, I think, where he was saying that although he thought Blair's uh, actions in Iraq were catastrophic, that he admired him as a progressive election winner. I mean, he's making these overtures to Labour voters. The problem, of course, is that actually most Lib Dem seats, certainly the ones that they held prior to last year, they were holding them against Conservative opposition, not Labour opposition. So again, the route back for the Lib Dems is actually appealing mainly to disgruntled Tories. Yeah, which is a, it's, it's always been a tricky argument for Liberal Democrats because they're a, a mixed bag as a party. That there, there are there are those who essentially are you know, rather centre right, and there is plenty of those who are centre left, and there are sort of there are different priorities within. There are those who are com- far more comfortable uh, taking on Tories in shires, where there are others who think no, we, this is the Liberal Democrats at heart are a party taking on the taking on Labour in urban areas of England. So it is it is a mixed bag. Starting from such a low base point, we know what happened to them last year. They were decapitated all over the place. There's only eight MPs presently. There was an argument to say that they would be extinct altogether, you know, in the next couple of years. I don't think that's the case, but I think it'll just be a slow, slow, slow return for them. And just quickly on the the Conservative Party, I think that the lack of a an organised opposition, or perhaps the lack of an opposition that is focused on the government rather than on itself, is going to have a big impact on how the the Brexit talks go if they really do kick off in earnest at the beginning of next year because instead of a strong opposition trying to force them to a form of Brexit that will keep some elements of free movement and and keep the free trade access without that lobbying voice coming from the opposition it leaves the field open to the right wing of the Tory party to push for a much harder version we've said before Having a weak opposition or having an ineffective opposition is really bad news for the governing party, too, because it makes you arrogant and flabby and lazy and you start making mistakes and you start taking voters for granted. It's true. It's it's a very unhealthy state of affairs. The Conservative Party love ripping each other up, as we know, particularly over Europe. 
there's there are problems ahead for Theresa May in terms of controlling her backbenchers, and I think the party membership as a whole, because I think she will be seen as a compromise merchant. Whatever she does at the end, it is going to be a big old bust up inside the Conservative Party. And the unfortunate thing is, they think and know they can probably get away with it and still win the next general election because of the state the Labour Party. The Labour Party aren't in a position presently to be challenging them. It seems a bit like we've reached the end of a chapter or maybe even the end of one book in a trilogy where we've had this summer that perhaps started with that surprising vote to leave the EU, has seen the departure of a prime minister, a new leader for the Conservative Party, a new leader for UKIP, a leadership challenge for the Labour Party, which has ended with the same Labour leader that we started with. The total number of votes cast in favour of leave was 17,410,742. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. The country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. That person cannot be me. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. I am therefore conference delighted to declare Jeremy Colburn elected as leader of the Labour Party. Thank you to Robert Meakin, also, of course, to David Stubbs earlier. Do get in touch on Twitter at Paul Osborne. For the moment, though, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Yeah.